it's this unspoken word and it goes you hear it all the time in fact you'll you'll see it in a newspaper whenever there's a newspaper article and a mother don't you know her name isn't going to be released due to fear of retaliation right so they leverage that fear by um it's just this unspoken word that you know that if you do too much, your person's going to get into trouble. Something bad is going to happen to them. And so that that's a tactic that, that's been working. But I find it's now um, families are tired and it's starting to backfire. Like we did learn that the louder you got and the higher up the ladder you went, the less likely the retaliation would happen. So we can see that we can actually switch that tide and, and have them be more fearful of us than we are of them. Welcome to the Prison Cells Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Robert Craig. Also with us today is Tank Johnson. Tank, how are you doing today? Doing good. Glad to be here. Always glad to talk to you. And also with us is John Dacey. John, how are you doing today? Great. Looking forward to today's conversation. So am I, John. I know uh, you have a relationship with our guest that we're going to have on today. So do you want to introduce her? Sure. Um, uh, Kate Boccia is the founder and president of the National Incarceration Association, and we are connected through Ebenezer Baptist Church's efforts out of Atlanta, um, a grassroots effort called End Mass Incarceration. That's how we became acquainted. So, uh, Kate, you're in Georgia, and please introduce yourself. Hi, thanks, John. It's nice to meet Robert and Tank. I appreciate being here. I'm Kate Basha. And like you said, I'm the founder and CEO president of the National Incarceration Association based here in Atlanta. And yeah, we do a lot of really good work. John's been part of the multi-faith initiative for ending mass incarceration along with me for quite some time now. And uh, we're really moving some some needles. Great. And so let's let's sort of hop right into it. How did you get involved in the criminal justice reform movement, specifically with with prisons? So my involvement started the day my son was arrested in um, November of 2011. Uh, he was arrested in downtown Atlanta at Georgia Tech and, and charged with armed robbery. And the day I received that phone call was the day I entered the criminal legal system. Um, uh, Daniel ended up. Uh, one year later, going to prison, he was sentenced to 15 years on a mandatory minimum charge of arm, armed robbery. He was found guilty by a jury. Although Daniel had no weapons, stole nothing, and, and hit nobody uh, per testimony. Unfortunately, the letter of the law uh, saw things a little differently. He, he was sentenced to 15 years in Georgia State Prison on a mandatory minimum, and that was the day I was also sentenced to prison as well. Just lived on the other side of the wire. So my involvement started with my son's journey um, and, the, and the staggering absurdities that I um, witnessed from the moment of that first phone call all the way through to today. Yeah, I know Tank has often talked about how, like, if there's one person in the incarceration system, that sort of drags the whole family into it. What kind of things did you notice or did you, you know, did you experience that drove home those absurdities? 
Well, first thing, I was just so frustrating that I couldn't get information that I needed. I'm a logical thinker. I've always been able to find resources and answers to my questions, but that wasn't the case all the way through the trial period, and especially once he landed in prison itself. Um, the questions are staggering. You have you want to know, uh, is he safe? How do I get him food? When can I visit? Is just They're, they're never-ending, and, and as a logical thinker, I would Google and I would be looking and, and there was no answers. There was no safe place. And the system itself wouldn't give me, they wouldn't provide me with the answers. They wouldn't allow me to help my own child um, survive this journey. They were, it was this complete and uh, us against them mentality. And I just found that to be frustrating um, and scary. So I, I was literally stayed in line one day to visit Daniel and I just had this aha moment that this is ridiculous. There's no reason why I shouldn't be able to get the information I need. I'm not doing anything that any other mother or father wouldn't do for their child or husband wouldn't do for their wife, etc. So uh, it's, it started with these, these aggravating lack of information um, and to me demanding answers to tough questions. And when you said us versus them, how did like, what was the us and them that you felt like was the divide? So it's the correctional officials and the families and the offenders, the people that live in prisons, all three of them. They're, they're, in, in my mind, the three parties are the, are the only three that really matter, and they should work together closely to help re restore and return a human being home. But instead, they, keep, they pit us against each other. They keep families fearful fearful of retaliation, fearful of be, your loved one being shipped to a camp, you know, far away, fearful of them, your loved one being put in solitary or losing commissary or other privileges. So they keep us fearful so that we can't, so that we don't say anything. We just remain quiet. Um, and that's the correctional system itself. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm a, I always find it, um, I don't know if I want to say fascinating or riveting because um, for so many people who have dealt with the the jail or prison system, it, that's been the status quo. And when we get um powerful allies like you, Kate, who come in and say like, "Hold on, this just is not right." Uh, it it does so much for the community, and but I always find it fascinating to see how uh, the absurdities that other people who don't deal with it as often when they get in it. So, you know, that's just, uh, I just find that so powerful. I mean, it, it is, and I, I bring people on our team on a regular basis and a lot of, every now and then there's a person that comes on board that isn't personally impacted by incarceration. And they always say things like, that can't be true, Kate. What do you mean that they actually, and this, that's not, you're telling me a fib and it's like you said, it's. They become like, what on earth is, are you talking about? So it's been hidden away. You know, we've been kept quiet and hidden for, well, since, you know. Yeah, a very long time ago. <laughs> Before my life. <laughs> it seems like, you know, the, the default is that things are generally working the way that they are. You know, and you hear like, I think it's easy for people to hear a story, right? Hear an anecdote and just cabin that off in their head and say, well, it's terrible that that happened, but there's no way that that could be the pervasive way that things are happening. Otherwise, the prison system doesn't make any sense, right? So in order for people to sort of have this continued belief that things are sort of functioning normally, 
they have to ha enter into this almost denial state or like a cabining state and say, well, even if your story is accurate, that can't be the way it, it always is or it, it mostly is. Exactly. I mean, we, we've got we've had to keep it like that. And um, but in reality, what people see on TV around prisons is you can times 10, you can multiply it by 10 fold the, the 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 horrors of it all in fact i just watched the documentary attica recently uh, and i thought that. my god nothing has changed mm -hmm. that they just was have barbaric. a few more white folk in there that's all <laughs> right <laughs> but yeah, it's, the, it's sad nothing's changed right no and okay so how did you get involved in sort of converting that personal experience of this us versus them and not being able to access information and all of those you know the the scary thoughts what what was the next step for you so um when i started realizing that well let me back up i was becoming an, an expert if you mm -hmm. will and being able to get information from very high level officials because i just demanded those answers and so families started coming to me and asking me questions because now I'm the expert and I know how to get to the warden. I know how to get to the deputy warden and I can get your kid glasses and we can get him moved to this new prison. So um, as I got, as I started getting more and more phone calls, I was again realizing that the desperate need there was for families to have the access to this information. So the, the NIA, National Incarceration Association, NIA, was born in a line at Central State Prison when I was standing there realizing that there's so many families that feel and behave the exact same way I do that have someone locked up. And what I mean by behavior, you know, when my son, the day of my son's conviction was the day my life changed forever, but on a lot of levels that people don't think about. And one is the way I behaved in spending my money. My zip code and where I live, you know, big box retailers kind of make these assumptions about my spending behaviors, right? And I was behaving that way. I was buying my pansies at Target in the winter and my tiki torches in the summer, and all the stuff I was in a new car every two years. And I would, all of those things, well, all that stopped the day of my son's conviction because I didn't care about those things anymore. I needed, to, and, and the money was becoming limited on what I could do for my personal pleasures. I had to spend it on him. And my time, like I couldn't go to the Georgia Aquarium. I had to drive by it to go four hours to visit my son in prison on my only day off. So, you know, these kind of behaviors change. Also how I voted, because I all of a sudden became an issue voter, which I never really thought I, I thought I was, but I wasn't because this issue didn't impact my family. So all these behaviors were changing. So I'm thinking in line, like if I did this, every other family member goes through the same process. Now, you know, when I was, my good friend Rotunda, she said to me, Kate, the day your son went to the prison is the day you turn black. And I really didn't understand my, personally that what we were doing in my country in all the years, I ignored it. I could safely ignore it, right? We don't lock up 15-year-old black boys and keep them there for the rest of their lives. My son would say, Mom, you've got to meet Big, Big Nar over here. He's been down since he was 15. I'm like, honey, no, we don't lock up 15-year-olds. So I was as naive as most Americans are. So when I became this one of those people in that prison line, and I realized that we have no voice, but we deserve a voice and that we, our voice can become quite powerful if we get organized. So I was becoming this expert. I was going up the ladder and literally going to the governor because I knew politics was a big part of this mess. So um, NIA was born. Uh, the families continue to come. To this day, I get a phone call at least, at least one a day, if not more, from a new family member looking for help. And I'm getting them from all over the country and including the federal system at this point. And how you 
you mentioned that your spending habits changed because you had to start spending money into the prison system. What do those, what does that look like? So I'm putting money on his books. You know, I think it's like $70 a week or something you can put on their books <clears throat> if you're lucky to have that, that kind of extra money. It's a maximum uh, put, that you can put in? Yeah, in Georgia, yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And then uh, the gas to get to see him, the bag of quarters, you can bring in $20 worth of quarters to put in the vending machines, um, telephone calls through the privatized telephone systems. Um, now the email system, um, we pay 45 cents an email uh, to, to send an email to them. And then anything else I wanted to send them quarterly packages, any extra clothes or uh, books or things of that nature. So all of that comes to the family's expense because they don't pay people that live in our prisons. So families the, bear the burden of that cost. So the Georgia state prisons are now using a private vendor for email and they're charging you per email. Yeah, so they've always used um, the private phone providers. Right. And when the tablets first came into play a few years, uh, probably about eight or so years ago, um, that was provided by the same providers of the phone services. And, um, you know, it, they were good and bad. The tablets are very good. I like the tablets a lot. I think they're really beneficial. I think there's a lot more we can do. But, yeah, the families have to pay to, to communicate through the tablet. Or if my son wanted to download any music or anything extra that didn't come built in, then we paid for that as well. Oh, it, I got, I, I got a, I got a question, Kate. Um, when it comes to like dealing with correctional facilities, um, I, I think there you have to kind of get used to the idea of these small wins are are kind of big gains. Can you tell me kind of like when you had that? when you noticed kind of that, hey, it's going to be a series of small wins type of mentality. I mean, I remember exactly because I was, as I was developing my idea of the NIA, I was also realizing that the families, the criminal justice system reform arena was really getting heated up, right? 2014 or so. And so there was a lot of good conversations, but I, I would show up at all these meetings all around the country. And I was like the only family member there. And I was like, okay, wait a minute. You're all talking about me. I got news for you. <laughs> so where am I? Why am I not in the room? So little wins like um, I created with the Georgia Department of Corrections a citizens advisory panel, and it was it was a series of fam about a dozen of us family members to sit at the table with all the big mucky muck commissioners, et cetera, all the higher level officials to talk about real concerns. And that was a big win here in Georgia. Big win. Um, we didn't resolve a whole lot. It was a lot of them patting themselves on the back, but we did get something simple done, like changing stations in the restrooms for the babies at visitation. And we got visitation hours improved. And so a few wins like that. Um, then we were, you know, moving along. Um, just the win for the NIA was that they started trusting us to not be whistleblowers. We're not about, you know, I can blow a lot of whistles, but the reality is we just need to fix some stuff. Yeah, <laughs> we got to work together to do it. That's funny you say that because I was going to say that a correctional facility's biggest fear is an investigation or a front page of the news. And so as you are, you know, looking to, you know, get some things changed. Yeah, there is a level of trust that they got to have with you to know kind of like, you know, what angle you're coming in at. And so, yeah. Wow. That's that's pretty fascinating. Yeah, they, they talk about one time they tried to keep us out of some conversations because we were working with families that were also working with uh, 
Southern Center for Human Rights on some legal, you know, civil rights issues. And I was told that, no, we can't work with us because we're working with them. And I said, no, I'm working with the family member. And, and if you guys would just do your jobs right, Southern Center wouldn't have any worry about suing you. They wouldn't have to sue you. I mean, you know, that's pretty simple. <laughs> yeah. And so in Georgia now, with the Department of Justice is investigating the state of Georgia prisons right now. And uh, they've gone radio silent, even on me. I've, I've noticed that we've had a, I think there's a big memo that went out, no talking <laughs> to anybody about anything. At APP, we believe the only way to truly end for-profit prisons in the United States is to challenge the constitutionality of private for-profit prisons in the courts. And with your help and moral courage, we will succeed. Completely donor-funded, we ask for your support. Your tax-deductible contribution will provide vital funding for building the infrastructure necessary to win a fight of this scale. And every dollar will bring us one step closer to our goal of abolishing private prisons. Please join the fight today by visiting abolishprivateprisons.org and click the donate button at the top of the site. And of course, like, share, and subscribe to the Prison Cells podcast from wherever you listen. Now back to the discussion. That's that's like a pretty common response to litigation. I think yeah, <laughs> general so. counsel says, don't talk to people about anything that could potentially be at issue here. It's mm -hmm. like, yeah, which is not, I mean, makes sense in some contexts, obviously, but, you know, prison systems, because of their ongoing issues, they're constantly under either litigation or threat of litigation. And so if you're stopping people from having productive conversations whenever there's a litigation risk, that means there's never communication. That's right. It's a big, that's a big step back too right. for us. It's a big step back. So you, what are some of the pain points that you're working on right now that you think, you know, that I think, you know, there's fixable issues and maybe non-fixable issues. What kind of fixable issues do you see in the system? Well, I think um, what we're inside the system itself, inside the prisons are um, pushing for unencumbered communication through these tablets and allowing for uh, the men and women to be able to speak to their family members and loved ones on a better and a more rather than tied to a phone on a wall like it's 1964. So, you know, helping the system to see how this is okay, uh, what they'll tell me is, my God, they can't have that. They'll do illegal activities. And I, my response would be, well, they're already doing illegal activities on the illegal cell phones that they have. So why not think a little differently? Let's think outside the box on what does it look like? Because communication is key for rehabilitation. So that's one thing um, inside. And then outside on policy points, you know, just pushing legislation and um, uh, something like the Accountability and Corrections Act, you know, keeping the prison system accountable to their SOPs, their, you know, standard operating procedures, those kinds of things uh, pushing for now. So I, let's, I want to go back a little bit, maybe. Um, you talked about the way that the the sort of prison system itself used fear as a tool. What kind of things did they leverage to make that a useful way for them to control behavior? Well, I mean, they, it's this unspoken word and it goes, you hear it all the time. In fact, you'll, you'll see it in a newspaper whenever there's a newspaper article and a mother don't, you know, her name isn't going to be released due to fear of retaliation. Right. So they leverage that fear by, um, it's just this unspoken word that you know that if you do too much, your person's going to get into trouble. Something bad is going to happen to them. 
And so that that's a tactic that, that's been working, but I find it's now um, families are tired and it's starting to backfire. Like we did learn that the louder you got and the higher up the ladder you went, the less likely the retaliation would happen. So we can see that we can actually switch that tide and, and have them be more fearful of us than we are of them. Right. Make it. Yeah. No, it's like shine a spotlight on the issue. Right. And that way, yeah. if there's retaliation, it's there's like proof of the linkage, right. which is scary. I mean, that's when there's civil rights litigation becomes easier. Exactly. So we, we push for families to remember to send um, emails to the, the wardens, et cetera, when they have issues, because that's a paper trail that uh, is open records, you know, public records. So um, they don't like emails and a lot of times they won't respond, but at least we sent it and we know that they mm -hmm. got it. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, it's funny. It's another litig litigation strategy, right? <laughs> it's, it's yes. Like you got to record as many things as possible. Keep them accountable. Yeah. So what, what kind of, I mean, this is the obvious answer is terrible, but what was the experience like for your son being inside of a prison? So the trauma um, of him living in prison for six years causes, he, my son passed away last August, uh, 2021. He was home for about three years. So during his incarceration, any, any human being that lives in a prison for any length of time is going to experience trauma, a lot of trauma masses amounts of trauma and it comes in many forms and and not only to mention that he had this trauma he also had no treatment for his addiction <clears throat> during his six years so he was not treated and the trauma was aggravating his other underlying conditions so um prison for him um because of me he had a, probably a little better experience than some folks because i had so many eyes on him but he um he lived in solitary confinement for four and a half weeks after being caught with a cell phone that he purchased from a correctional officer. So that cost me $100. That's a whole nother talk show. We got, he got fined $100 for finding a cell phone on him, put in solitary confinement for four and a half weeks. Who paid that $100? Hmm, let me think. That would be me. So four and a half weeks in solitary messed his head up in a big way, as you can imagine. Uh, he'd been stabbed. He'd been pepper sprayed. He was told, inmate, your mama can't help you now. You know, and this was a good young man, a man that, you know, any one of you would be, would stand up and say, what a stellar human being. He didn't deserve to be treated that way. But, but as a man, he also learned to suck it up and just deal with it. And he internalized all of that. Um, coming home, he came home October 2018. I got him out six years early, eight years earlier than his mandatory sentence. But when he came home, we didn't, we weren't aware of, what that trauma would end up doing and how those triggers from being in prison would, would trigger him to relapse, even after being sober for six years. Um, his triggers were when his uh, wife was having her baby, their baby, he was in the hospital pushing the plastic cart down the hall and he had an anxiety attack and he said, Mom, he was sweating, shaking and crying. He said, Mom, I feel like I'm back in prison. And that was the day he went and purchased a pack of cigarettes and he hadn't had cigarettes in years. So these triggers from the trauma um, just um, exasperated his addiction that was untreated and, and, um, and ultimately ended his life. Yeah, it's just, it's remarkable to me to hear you casually say things like he was stabbed, he was pepper sprayed, you know, because it's like, those are remarkable. I mean, those are serious, serious issues, but they get normalized almost. Like that's sort of a, it's a day-to-day -day experience. Yeah, someone got stabbed the other day. You're so right. And we wonder why children that live in cities with violence 
become these hardened 15 year old gang thugs because it's normalized this behavior. And then we put them in a prison that's even more normalized. So we're taking these young sick kids that were traumatized in their, in their neighborhoods in a normal situation. We're hearing gunshots every night is normal. Um, and seeing people murdered is normal and putting them in a prison where seeing someone stabbed is normal. That's okay. If someone's going to get stabbed. You're, if you're in prison, if you don't get stabbed, you're going to see someone stabbed. That's just a fact in the men's facilities and women's maybe not so much. Um, yeah, it's normal to be brutalized. It's normal for them to be told they're inmates and that the, you know, that they're useless and that every time you try, they do something good, they kick that chair out from underneath them and just knock them back down. And that's normal. You're right. And it became normal for me, I guess. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, there's basically no way for it not to be right. Like you have, you're dealing with it on such a frequent basis that if you, reacted the way that it's like human to react to those kinds of things like you wouldn't be able to do your work with the nia right like you would have to take time and like I would really break down position, sucking my exactly. thumb rocking because that's the only other option that you have because you're scared every day it traumatizes the family i have true trauma as a result of my son's incarceration uh, when he would call me um uh, panic would set in when i'd see that phone number come up that was the prison phone number right calling me I would just start shaking and panicking like, oh, my God, what is he going to say to me? Because it could be, hey, mama, how you doing? Or it could be, mama, I just got stabbed or anything. It could be anything. So when he was actually, when he came, when he got to a transitional center, um, he had a cell phone. And But one day the prison phone called me and I'm like, oh, okay, must be somebody else because some other men would call me or women. And so I answered that normally and I thought it was somebody else and it said, that the, the recorded message, you're receiving a call from Daniel Basha. And I panicked. I'm like, oh my God, he's back in prison. And I was shaking, sweating, shaking. And he, he's like, hey, mama. I'm like, what are you doing? What are you doing? He goes, what? what? Relax, mama. I'm just, I, need, I have a question. I said, why are you calling me from a prison phone? He said, oh, my phone's down in my bunk. I just had a quick question. And I was shaking. Like, it messed my head up for the whole day. Like, so this is, a, this is real. And multiply that. If we have two and a half million Americans locked up, then we've got to have two and a half million people that feel like me. And we know that number's exponentially higher. Right. Multiplied by the number of days that each person is in there, right? So it's yeah. this like ongoing thing. Years of years of fear and trauma and torture. It, yeah. it, shouldn't, it, it shouldn't have to be like this. Absolutely. That's why we use the word absurd a lot on our website. It's absurd. There's no other institution in our country that would accept a 40% failure rate recidivism, right? would accept this kind of behavior. Do you know, we had four uh, red, uh, um, representatives from our state of Georgia representatives show up at a women's prison a couple months back. They turned them away. They wouldn't let them in. The state prison wouldn't let them in. The state prison would not let their state representatives into the facility. That's they interesting. Said, yeah, well, I wonder why. Because they, had to, they didn't have, you know, the principal was coming to the classroom unannounced. That just right. doesn't work real well, does it? Yeah. So how, how, can you imagine if they showed up at a school and they wouldn't let them in the school? No. I was, we, it wouldn't I, happen. No. I taught for a couple of years and it, it, it's, you, the amount of monitoring that goes on, I actually like it because I do, I think it helps m me in some ways to have somebody come in, but you do have to have this like constantly thinking about like, all right, what happens if someone walks in right now? Is this, you know, like the oversight is good in it some is. ways. And we like, have, we have no oversight in our, the federal system's even 10 times worse. And everybody thinks the federal system's cushy. It's not. I get calls and it sounds like they're calling from Pelham, Georgia, some little prison in Georgia. It's a federal prison. 
gangs and stabbings and murders and mayhem. Okay, you know, this is this makes no sense. Right. And and how is this impacting the communities that that these people live in and are coming home to? It's this it's a staggering impact. It's uncalculated impact. Uh, we don't measure that impact at all on any level. Yeah. So let's go, I guess, back to some of the work that you've done since, you know, since you got involved. Your, your organization has grown a lot, I think, right? Oh, yes. Yes. <clears throat> we went from about 800 followers on Facebook. We're over 12,000 now. We have about, we've, we've worked about 1,800 cases, case files. Um, and that's probably not even an accurate number because I probably didn't count about three years worth of, of intake that I, you know, was just helping people randomly. Um, but we've, we've grown, we've, we've connected to some major partners with a multi-faith initiative. That's a national initiative and, uh, started at Ebenezer in the temple here in Atlanta, um, to help faith leaders to, um, understand their role in ending mass incarceration. And how do we, uh, we, we focus on narrative change. We focus on public policy and education and on congregational engagement. So how to get faith leaders, especially grass tops, faith leaders to, understand the power that they have to impact policy, really. Um, but we also, in Georgia, we are part of the Justice Reform Partnership, which is over 60 organizations that um, are far left, far right, and everything in between that work together on uh, legislative issues. That's pretty powerful. So we're, you know, NIAs, we believe in working together. That's why I, I was referring to talking to correctional officials. How do we work with you instead of against you, you know, to get things resolved so that it's so that everybody can improve. A correctional officer can have a better experience working in a prison, right? Yeah. So that's just some of the things that we've engaged in well, recently. I guess my question would be, you know, knowing that there's a certain way that the prisons um, kind of have to run, um, there's that underbelly of whatever that is that, how the prison runs did you ever feel or, or did your son ever tell you that some of the things that maybe you were fighting for were in conflict with just kind of the status quo in the prison um what's understood between the guards the inmates the the higher ranking people there's that thing that's understood did you ever feel like you were going against that part well, I, I actually had the aha moment when I was touring Valdosta State Prison here in Georgia, which is a maximum security prison, and I got to tour it with the warden and, and some students, and I was shocked at what I saw, and I realized that it is a huge undertaking to run a prison, and that there are dangerous people in prisons, and that there's a certain way it has to be run, it just does, to make it work. Right. So I, I did have a little bit more understanding, so that's when I think we shifted to say, Let's let's figure out how, how to support what they do, because they, like you said, they have a role and that really the Department of Corrections role isn't to make sure Kate Basha feels good. You know, that's not their role. Their role is to keep that place safe and secure. That's it. Yeah. So if we work together so that there's a group that would help Kate Basha feel good and make sure that she's OK while she and that the correctional officials let me help my child through certain tools and avenues that are acceptable to the prison. We could we could certainly create a different a dynamic inside, and it would it helps everybody, including again correctional officers and staff. It, it would help that that facility could become safer because right now 
families are well aware of contraband. Now the system will tell us that we bring it all in. Families bring it all in. Well, I got news for you. There was two years of COVID with no visitation and there was still contraband in our prison. So that theory goes right out the window. But yes, families do bring it in. Families throw it over the fence. Correctional officers bring it in. Staff brings it in. Vendors bring it in. We get it. Drones fly it over. But um, in reality, if the families were allowed a safe place to discuss these things, we have the key to the safety of that facility. We'd know when our loved ones gang affiliated, when they have a contraband thing. We're not going to tell anybody. So right. we, if we had a safe place to communicate, I often say that without letting families have this safe place, then the system is allowing for that contraband to stay in that facility and those gangs to grow and those, um, the, the, the security of the system is actually being breached by not allowing families the, the support that they need. That's a fact. Yeah. No, I, I mean, I just always, you know, when you spoke to maybe potential retaliation from whether it be the guards or what have you, um, I just kind of wonder what would happen or what did happen. So, um, yeah, no, thank you for kind of painting that picture. I didn't even think about drones, but yeah. of course they would use them for that. It's like, oh, yeah, that's a big problem right now. <laughs> yeah, they're sort of tailor made for something like that. And prisons are in rural communities a lot of times, so you know nobody's nobody's out in the field looking for drones. Yeah, that's that's crazy. So you mentioned one of the things that abolish private prisons that we really we often get sort of pigeonholed, I think, into this idea of criminal justice reform as being this lefty progressive kind of issue. But you mentioned that the work that you do, you have this, you, I think you call the far right, far left, you work with everybody in between. And that's something that we also, you know, we try to stress to people is like, private prisons are a terrible thing. And people from all over the political spectrum realize that when you're talking to them, what kind of groups have you been successful with? And, and how does how do those conversations go when you're working with people? you know, that might otherwise not be natural allies on, on different issues. I mean, we really, we put in our strategic plan for 2022-2023, and that's, you know, working with unlikely bedfellows, if you will. And how do we work with Department of Community Supervision or Pardons and Parole Board or private prisons? How do we work with them to, um, to address the concerns that we have? And in, 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 in how do we work with all of these different entities in different mindsets to do the one thing we really need to do, and that's repair, restore, and return a human being to their community safely. And so we have to, you know, it's not about, to me, the privatization factor, I don't love it, but I also don't like the state, the way the states run our prisons either. So frankly, I, I think we should get rid of state prisons and then we should have some regulation over private, <laughs> private facilities so we could have a little more control. But um, yeah, it's it's a tough balancing act, and I've been accused of things and pointed fingers at over the years but in reality i just our, our motto is working together works and uh, until we can eliminate private prisons and privatization of things and until we can we're just going to have to work with them that's a that's kind of a point that i wanted to bring up about just pushback like um you know i know that there's you know probably uh things that you heard over the course of you know your time uh, with the NIA, um, what what have been some of the main criticisms um, of you, your organization? What do you think those have been? I mean, I think early on it was that um, 
I was just trying to be, you know, goody goody with the Department of Corrections and get all that limelight and be in that front, you know, front of the showroom, front of the stage with them. And also, um, I've been uh, a I've been asked how I could possibly understand the plight of an African American that's locked up as a suburban white woman. You know, the, and so those are the kinds of things I've heard many times over the years. But I've been able to just quickly respond and and remind folks that this isn't a, anything more than a mother trying to help her son. That's what it started. And there isn't a person out there. There isn't a man in prison that doesn't love his mama the way my son loved me. <laughs> so, you know, if we just think of it that way, a, a love of a, a mother and her child and how to help a system do better, you know, I think I've, I've earned my reputation now as somebody that's fair and honest. And I also don't accept, you know, I won't take um, simple answers to complicated questions. And you can throw all the mud at me you want because I'm not wrong at anything I'm doing. There are many ways to get involved with the Prison Cells podcast, build your moral courage, and help us eradicate for-profit prisons in the U.S. Visit AbolishPrivatePrisons.org today and build the momentum of abolishing private prisons by working with an organization to pass a resolution in support of the cause. Get to know the ins and outs of how private prisons operate and why. Outside of the site, you can write your congressperson and shed light on this awful practice. As always, please like, share, and subscribe to the Prison Cells Podcast from wherever you listen. Now back to the discussion. really curious because i know it's happened i know that it's it's something that's just low hanging fruit for all involved and uh just kind of what your response you seem like a feisty you know i wouldn't want to get in an argument with you <laughs> so, tell my husband that he'll tell you i'm a hornet <laughs> so I, I get it from my mother <laughs> so i can imagine you giving uh you know those people the business um because Again, when your heart's in the right place, you know, the, it, it doesn't matter what people say. That's right. That's exactly right. John, I see you sort of leaning. Yeah. Kate, could, could you talk a little bit about what it is NIA does when you do intakes for a new family? Exactly what is it that you're doing with or for the family or their yeah. loved one? So the intake is a lot like triage because a family member will call you and be a lot of times hysterical or very angry at some, you know, very emotional on some level, whether it's anger or fear. And so we triage, like what we try to pull out initially is what is it the one thing that we can help you with other than getting your person out of prison today? You know, what is it you're calling about? So once we determine what those, the call is about, it might be just one issue, might be a few. We start the intake process um, and we used to use a spreadsheet. We now have a platform, you know, a cloud platform. But we, we ask uh, leading questions. Our goal is to find out how, the, if, how is the loved one? Are they safe and secure, first and foremost? If, that, if they are safe and secure, then how do we help them grow in the moment that they're in? So by, by offering mom the resources she's looking for. So if she's calling up because she's trying to get her son glasses because he's blind as a bat and she can't, nobody will get him his glasses, you know, that's kind of a simple thing. So we, it's a, so we, we have about a 40 to 45 points of intake. We don't ask every question the first call, 
but some of the we were gathering data we determined and some of the data was pretty valuable so we added more questions such as uh, how are you registered to vote did you have a hired attorney or a, uh, a pro bono you know public defender were you satisfied with your attorney so we're asking a lot more questions as we move along in our conversations with families they trust us um, when they call we we've always we oftentimes hear thank god you're the only one that answered the phone god bless you i've had mothers crying grandmothers sobbing like babies because we fixed the problem so the intake is a triage but we want to keep it moving and we want to keep connected to that family during the entire journey and ideally three years post-release by checking in with them how is johnny doing today you know how do they find how do they find out about you well a lot of different ways. One of my team members now, she's on our team, said that her husband found my number on the wall of the bathroom and his, <laughs> in the prison he was living in. I'm like, hey, call Mama Kate. They call me Mama Kate. But my name, you know, got out in the prisons early on. And then um, uh, we didn't, the NIA couldn't, and we still can't put it out there fully because we can't handle the, what will happen when the floodgates open. But we're about ready because we're getting funded. But now it's word of mouth primarily. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll ask. It's one of the questions. How did you hear about us? A lot of times, it's you know somebody inside told somebody outside about us. So, does your organization have an online presence that you'd like to tell the listeners about? Yeah, we have a website www.joinnia.com. It's a very very useful tool. Uh, again, we don't do intake there yet, but we will soon. Uh, but it's got a lot of good resources on it. It's you'll you'll enjoy the website. We talk about the absurdities. We, we are in campaign mode since my son passed away. We, la we leveled up and um, we're pushing. I can, be, I can be louder now as the, as the face of the organization with no fear anymore. Right? I don't have a fear of them putting my kid back in prison. So pushing harder and, and not being afraid of Department of Corrections uh, blacklisting me. I don't care. I'm going to keep doing what I do with or without you. It doesn't matter to me. So we're, we're growing in that level. And... Um, um, we started with a letter to, to Biden back in September last year, and we've been in campaign mode. We've done a press conference, and uh, we're getting ready to uh, get more organized and hopefully start our 501c4 so we can form a, a voter block um, advocacy group. Where are your services available? I mean, they're available anywhere. People call from all over the country. So I have a couple team members that will take calls from other states. We don't know how to work all the states. We barely know how to work Georgia. But as we get the call, we do the same process. We can't always resolve an issue. That's not, I mean, our goal is to resolve what we can, but we can't always resolve the issue that they're calling about. But our, our, our goal is to gather this information and show, show the policymakers, these are the gaps. These are the failures. These are the things that families keep calling about. We can literally say, like, oh, for instance, one of my prisons had an outbreak of scabies, and we got a bunch of calls. So right away I say, okay, warden, I just had 20 families call me about their 20 different people that have scabies, and, you know, what are you doing about it? So, you see, we can, we can pull this data and, and start directing it to where we need to direct it to push for change. Obviously, you decided to keep doing this even after you lost your son. Oh, yeah. What, what was that? decision-making process like for you it must be all consuming to be doing this work it is it's a full-time job and I've not been paid ever <laughs> which is fine um, that's not why I did it uh, we will get funded we but but yeah when Daniel died um, 
I'll back up. When Daniel was born, it was the most glory. One of my, it was my first child. It was a glorious day in my life. The day he was convicted, it was as if they killed my son. They shot him right there on the stand, you know, on the, on the, you know, in the courtroom. I grieved as if he was murdered. I grieved deeply. I was profoundly depressed and deeply sick for many, many, many months. I pulled myself together and I realized I couldn't help Daniel if I didn't help myself. And I was just a victim like he was. So I got strong and I, and when he came home from prison, here's day two of glorious come home, my baby's home. It was the most glorious day of my life. I, I could just cry thinking about that day. And then the day he died was as if he went to, he didn't go to hell like he did when he went to prison. He went to heaven. So for me, it was easy. I didn't grieve in the same way. I miss my son terribly and I'll, I'll always miss him. And I hate what the system did to my child and I'll fight for him. And I will not allow, I don't like the saying, uh, your death is not in vain, because I don't like that. I say, my son's death will not go unchallenged, period. Because he was failed by the, all the systems that my country told me was it were put in place to help protect us. The education system failed him. The health systems failed him. The justice system failed him. And the national security system failed him because my son died of fentanyl poisoning. And just because he put it in his heroin didn't mean that it was any more of a murder than as if we sprinkled it on his taco that he ate that day. And I will not allow the systems to go unchallenged. And so for me, John, it was an easy transition to put on my mama bear fight like I never have before. I have three grandchildren. My son left a son. My son, my grandson Enzo and my two granddaughters are the reason that I continue this work because I know what's heading down the pike. I know what's going to happen to this country if we don't quickly, if we're way past due, the system is imploding on itself and the failures are coming out and we're seeing it with the, you know, with our, our children now. I mean, it's, it's imploding. So I won't allow that my grandchildren to, to bear the burden of this, this thing that we created. And so that's you, my drive. I think you told me a lot of the other people that work with you refer to themselves as mama bears. Yes. We have an initiative called If Moms Ran Prisons, and I'm ex super excited about that. We're just developing our one-pager on it now in a presentation deck, but it's really a policy-driven thing. So if moms had all the tools and resources that they need to help their child, like the government has, then there would be no sick children in our, and there would be no danger. There would be no kids in prison because we could fix them. So if we use those same tools and resources that a mother knows is necessary to repair and restore and return their child, if the government would use those tools that are already in place, voila. Because if moms could fix everything, they would do it. We wouldn't ask any of you for help. <laughs> what are some of the highlights, do you think, if, if, you, if moms were in charge? Um, safe, safe space, first of all. That they ha there's no reason that they should fear for their lives while they're locked up. Um, education. Make sure that they're educated. My son was in six years. He could have had a master's degree. He's a brilliant young man. Had absolutely no education. Uh, uh, healthcare. Uh, give them healthcare. They're coming home. They're coming home now sicker than they were when they went in. Healthcare. Parents want the same thing for any child. We want them to be educated and healthy and have uh, the ability to, to grow in whatever space that they're in. Whether they're tied to a hospital bed because they have cancer or whether they're in a prison, they should be allowed to grow in that space that they're in to be the, the, the brilliant person that God designed them to be. That, that's the questions I have. Do you, John, Tank, do you guys have? No, no. Um, Mama, Mama Kate, I just <laughs> want to say um, 
you know, thank you for your relentless fight um, for justice uh, for those incarcerated. Um, as a person who has been incarcerated on the other side of that wall, um, I, I do understand uh, what a monumental task that is. And so uh, the fact that you get up every day to fight that fight, I just want to say thank you. You're welcome. It's my pleasure. Kate, is there anything else you want people to know? I mean, this, it, you answered our questions for an hour, so. Yeah, I would always want people to just understand that their neighbor might be hurting in this arena. And that don't, don't if, if my child committed a crime or my person that I love committed a crime, it doesn't mean that I'm a bad person and I shouldn't be treated like one. Be fair and, and, be, and pay attention. Learn what's going on. Go tour a jail or a prison. Go see what your tax dollars are paying for and meet somebody, meet a man or a woman that lived in a prison for 5, 10, 20, 30, 40 years and sit down and talk to them. And you'll see, you, you know, you can't close your eyes once you, once you engage. So engage, fully engage, and, and because you're paying for it, your tax dollars. So you might want to know what your taxes are going to. Kate, this might be a step backwards in, in terms of the flow of this discussion, but, and you've already touched on it. But obviously, your life changed the day your son was convicted. How does it change your family life? I mean, I assume, I, I don't want to get too personal here, but it affects families, not just the mother-son relationship you've been describing. Anything else I mean, to say about that? I do. So it, it destroys families. It, it destroys marriages people lose their homes and their children and their livelihoods as a result of incarceration but uh and and it nearly destroyed my marriage i was deeply depressed and very much at odds with my husband at the beginning but then another mystery mysterious thing happens that we grew stronger uh, my daughter Paige uh, loved her brother dearly and was deeply hurt and was in her uh, final years of college during his early part of his incarceration so it impacted her so many ways and um, we learned to talk as a family and we learned to go sit when we would go visit Daniel you sit in a little room right tank it's a little visitation room it looks like a the, the prisons aren't as scary as they appear they're real clean and the room is this little kind of like cafeteria at a middle school if you will We're sitting at this table and we would talk you can't bring in anything I can't bring a piece of paper a pen a book I mean I can't a phone nothing there's no music in there <laughs> nothing you can bring nothing in bag of quarters to feed them some junky vending machine. But we learned to talk as a family. And I used to challenge friends to say, I dare you to sit with your 22 year old for six hours in a room and think of something to talk about. And I used to worry like, what will we talk about? It was never a problem. We sometimes we, we would talk politics. We would talk, we would make fun of the guards. We would laugh, we would joke, we would cry. We would get angry. We would sit quietly sometimes. We, you know, we would just, but we learn to just love each other in a space that's so rare in this day and age. And um, w when Daniel came home, we, we would sit and t just talk again. I mean, we read books together. So it was kind of old fashioned, right? In a way, and it brought us really, really close. And, and it brought Daniel and his sister so close uh, that uh, again, like how many brothers and sisters sit in a room for hours on end, <laughs> you know, knee to knee. And, uh, so it's that that was a beautiful part of it. That was the only good part of it that came out of it is our learning to be a, a family that 
that cared about each other and listened to each other and really heard each other. And I would assume there were plenty of people in the facility that I mean, didn't have that kind of connection. Yeah, I mean, when you go to visitation, you'll be lucky if there's 20 or 30 families of a facility that had, you know, 12 or 1,500 men living in it. So a lot, most people don't have that family support for a lot of reasons. Um, sometimes they've lost, um, you know, their families have are estranged. Sometimes their families have been there so long, they're just all gone. They all died. Or they just the it's difficult to go visit sometimes, you know, it's, it's, if they're really far away, it's expensive, et cetera. So most men and women don't get visitation. And that's a sad thing because it's really critical. Um, that would be another thing for me. If moms ran prisons, we would have, you can have visitation anytime you want if, by anybody who wants to visit you. I mean, because it's critically important to healing and repairing and returning a person home. Anything else, John? That's it for me. Well, I, Kate, I could talk to you for hours, I think, <laughs> just like sitting at that table. But yeah. I appreciate how generous you've been with your time today. I love it. It's important work. It's my life's work. I won't stop, and they know it. Mama Kate coming in the room. Everybody's going to stand up and salute some, one of these days. <laughs> I tell them. I, I, my voice hasn't gotten high enough, and I, I'll say one more thing. I'm challenging some of these high-level players in this arena. And I don't want to call it any names here, but I'm talking to the celebrities that stand up and say, we're all about criminal justice reform. And then someone throws $100 million at them, and I'm not mentioning any names. Because that's not, that's not fair that I don't get the recognition that they do. Because I'm down in dirty boots to the ground, hard, dirty work that we do with very little recognition and very little funding. People don't just want to throw money at me. I, I, you know, when, frankly, if, if we got all the funding we needed, we could show you how we can fix some stuff. So for, that's that challenge piece again. I'm about to go after some folks. They all know it, too. <laughs> they know who I am. <laughs> John, John, John Smirking, too. It's, there's a, something that we've talked about internally is the, you know, there's a wealth gap in the United States. There's also a wealth gap in the nonprofit community. You know, like you have these you know, giant, giant, giant nonprofits who suck up a lot of oxygen in their room and you have more, you know, focused, specific nonprofits. And it's hard to convince donors that like, you know, if you give us 1% of the money that you're giving to this giant organization, we can make real change that's targeted. We you know? can, we can show significant, measurable change. And that's what I want to challenge. Let me see what you've done with that money. Let me see that. Well, I want to see the family success story. Is that person employed in an upward trajectory for career growth? Are they homeowners? Are their family units back together? Because if I'm not seeing that, then we're not changing anything. No, what I I don't see that. What I found is you 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 find these big corporations who've been given these endowments and this and lots of money, and whenever you know you ask where that money is, I mean you've got to go through a massive stack of papers just to even find out what's going on. And it's like, it should be a lot easier than that. So um, I'm sure they didn't have to go through that to give you the money. So <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so no, thank No, thank you. I appreciate that. Kate, I'd like to ask you just a, a couple more questions about NIA, National Incarceration Association. So you've been working on this structure for some years now, and you've gone from the ground up one mom 
to now a number of people working with you as volunteers and as board members, advisory committees. Do you have any thoughts about taking the model that you've created on the road, basically to serve as a model for creating similar organizations in other parts of the country? Definitely. I mean, if I could, if, if the funding were here right now, we would be ready to expand. And we're starting to expand by just identifying the families that have the ability to connect us to what's working in Alabama, for instance, or Texas or wherever. So yeah, we want to expand this. This wants to be the, uh, you know, a pilot uh, initiative to show working together, uh, how to solution oriented stuff to, uh, we want to pilot it here in Georgia and then expand it. We had a rollout of five states, Oklahoma, Texas, Alabama. Uh, I forget now. So again, we're ready. And um, because we're building a team of the volunteer staff, they behave like very well-paid staff, um, engaging in a federal system and then in other states now. So just uh, if we get a call from another state, does that mom know what's going on there? Who's doing what where? Do they have a justice reform partnership? Do they have a Southern Center for Human Rights type? And if and who are they? So yeah, I mean, I'm I can't wait till we can launch state number two. That's just that's what drives me. Thanks, Kate. Okay. Thank you so much, and remember to for the listeners. Thanks for joining us, and uh, whatever platform you listen to us on, please go leave a review. Uh, it really does help share the word, and this you know this whole podcast is about you know, getting people introduced to new organizations and new groups. So we thank you for listening and we'll see you next time.